So Ellie, this is our fourth interview and we've reached the 1980s, an important decade for you personally. You became a reader in 1981. In 1983 you established the Research Institute, which has become the world-famous Lauterbach Center for International Law, and in 1989 you became a CBE. Could you elaborate on this decade? Yes, well, gladly, because as you say, it was quite a, a full decade. It was um, the decade following my return from Australia in uh, <coughs> 1978, and we dealt with that last time. So, <coughs> at the end of the the, the 70s, I was uh, elected a, an associate of the Institut de Droit International, and I became a member uh, of that in the ordinary progression of advancement uh, in 1983. So in the uh, 1980s, the first case I was involved in was the, um, the case between Malta and Libya and Tunisia. Libya and Tunisia uh, were in front of the International Court of Justice to uh, get a determination of the correct maritime boundary between them. And Malta uh, thought that its interests might be affected by the judgment in that case. So it applied to the ICJ to intervene. Well, the ICJ re rejected the application, saying that in any case, the judgment of the court as between Malta and, uh, uh, sorry, as between Tunisia and Libya would not affect Malta. And it was so worded in the end, so as to preserve Malta's position. So then Libya and Malta continued with a case of their own before the ICJ in the years 82 to 85. Uh, that was uh, noteworthy, yes, that was noteworthy in, 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 in one uh, important respect, and that, namely that uh, Libya, uh, Malta was contending that the, uh, the boundary should be determined by reference to the equidistance principle should be equidistant from the coasts of Libya and Malta. Uh, Malta wanted the, the boundary to be further to the north towards Malta. So Libya came up with an interesting argument uh, that the boundary should reflect uh, what they called an incipient plate boundary. That is to say, by reference to uh, tectonic plate theory, uh, they could see that there might be an opening up of the tectonic plates below the ocean uh, and that the boundary should correspond with that. Well, uh, the basis on which uh, they advanced that claim was the evidence of uh, uh, two, uh, I suppose, geologists from Amsterdam who... Uh, <coughs> Were, who were put in the witness box to support the, the Libyan position, and it fell to me uh, to cross-examine them. Well, now, quite by chance, uh, the, the Libyans, not by chance, but the Libyans had actually submitted an article that these two professors had written uh, in which they developed their theory about this incipient plate boundary. And... Um, I misplaced that uh, text amongst my papers. 
So I had to ask the editor of the journal in which the article had previously appeared if he could kindly send me another copy, which he did. And then, by chance, I found the original as submitted by Libya. And I compared the two, and I found an interesting discrepancy between them. In the article <coughs> submitted uh, to the journal, there was a footnote saying that the article had been prepared, uh, that the authors acknowledged the assistance of the committee uh, in preparing the article. In the copy presented to the court, that footnote was, of acknowledgement was missing. So I uh, asked the uh, professor who was in, in the witness, on the witness stand, I said, can you explain the difference between the two? Why was the acknowledgement in the article but not in the copy sent to the court? And he, <coughs> he answered, well, the committee thought it would be better to omit it. And I said, well, of whom did the committee consist? He replied, it consisted of the lawyers acting for Libya. So uh, at that point, I, I said to him, I have no further questions, because he had completely undone the authenticity or, or, or veracity yes. of, of the submission. But before I came to that point in the examination, I had asked him about this incipient plate boundary, and I asked him, <coughs> when was it likely to develop? And he replied, in about 25 million years, at which point the court uh, found itself greatly amused. So that particular theory of Libya's uh, did not go down well. The court rejected it, and <coughs> but in due course it found a line somewhere between the Libyan claim and the Maltese claim. It was an interesting case. Uh, in, it, I, in it I had with me as a colleague uh, Ian Brownlee, who was of course very good. So that was Libya-Malta. It took three years, one way or another. We had to deal, for example, with an application by Italy to intervene uh, in the case between Libya and Malta, rather on the same grounds as uh, Malta had applied to intervene in the Libya-Tunisia case. But again, the court didn't accept that. Well, alongside <coughs> all that, uh, we established in 1983 uh, what was initially called the Research Center for International Law here in the university. And I have to acknowledge the uh, major part that was played in the uh, creation of that center by my three colleagues, uh, Clive Parry, who died in 1982 but had been uh, involved in the uh, preliminary discussions, uh, Robbie Jennings uh, and uh, Derek Byatt. And they, they set it up simply because, not simply, but I think largely because uh, they felt it would be fair to me to create some sort of umbrella for the various activities that I was pursuing, like uh, the international law reports and so on. Uh, we, we had no institutional protection for these initiatives. So the research center was set up in 1983. Initially, it was nothing more than, than a name on on a piece of note paper. We had no premises, we had no money. <coughs> a friend of mine, uh, Edward St. George, uh, said to me, well, I I'll, I'll give you a building. So I said, well, that's very nice. Uh, 
It happened that in 1985, a house came up for sale in Cranmer Road in Cambridge, which uh, suited our needs perfectly, since we obviously didn't have the money to start on our green field site and build our own building. So this house, number five, Cranmer Road, came on the market, and we bought it. Uh, Edward uh, honoured his commitment uh, in, in large part. He didn't provide all the money. Uh, we, we got money from other sources, including uh, my own college, Trinity College, and we bought uh, number five Cranmer Road for a price that was, that was then the highest price that had been paid for a residential property in Cambridge. Really? Uh, today, um, that price would be about a fraction of what the house would fetch on the open market, but we don't propose to sell it. So from 1985 onwards, we, ha we had our own building, and uh, we, we could uh, progress from there. We encourage scholars from abroad, and that's one of the major aspects of the activity of the centre today, uh, and <coughs> to, to encourage people to come from abroad, pursue their own research uh, in this ambiance where they can uh, mix with other international scholars, and it's been very popular. And we also uh, instituted uh, the Friday lunchtime talks uh, each Friday in term, we have a speaker from outside who speaks for about uh, 40 or 50 minutes and then there's a, a period of questioning. The whole thing is brought to an end quite promptly at 2 o'clock to enable people to get on with their other activities. They're very popular, these lectures. They are, yeah. yes, they are. Uh, not least, I think, because we give those who come a free sandwich lunch. <laughs> uh, this was uh, the idea of the, the Friday lunches was uh, uh, largely the product of, uh, <coughs> of Maureen McClashan. Uh, Maureen McClashan uh, had been a pupil of mine many, many years previously, and she came on secondment from the Foreign Office as our Deputy Director uh, for a while. Uh, <coughs> she, she, she was a very capable lady, and uh, I, I had asked Geoffrey uh, Howe, who was then the Foreign Secretary, who was an old friend of mine, if, he might, if I might have her for a while. And he said, yes, you could have her for three years. Uh, as we approached the end of the three years, I, I was obliged to say to Maureen, look, I think you have to go back to the Foreign Office because there's really no advancement here. We, we can't do anything more for you than what we're doing now, either in salary or status. And so she went back to the Foreign Office and very shortly afterwards, afterwards was appointed as the a British ambassador to the Holy See in Rome. And uh, she had a, a seemingly very cordial relationship with the then Pope, Pope, uh, Pope John, I think it was. But uh, she, she was a great help to the centre while she was with us. And we had these Friday lunches, we had these researchers. We <coughs> took various initiatives to procure some money for people to do research, not necessarily within the centre, but under the auspices of the centre. <coughs> One such uh, work of some importance, of great importance, is the commentary prepared by Christoph Schroyer on the ICSID Convention. So, um, as I say, the centre started in 1983, got its own building in 1985, and one of its uh, early activities, which has persisted ever since 
was the promotion of what are called the Hirschlauter Park Memorial Lectures. And we've had some very distinguished lecturers. Including um, Hans Blix. And, oh yes, Hans Blix, and in, in more recent times, earlier on we had Christoph Skubyshevsky, we had Ava Iban, <coughs> and so on. And eventually I myself uh, gave the series of lectures in 1992, which were subsequently published by the Cambridge University Press under the title of Aspects of the Administration of International Justice. Uh, and those lectures go on uh, uh, at the present time. We, <coughs> we've had um, some very interesting recent lectures from Ralph Zacklin, who <coughs> was uh, until recently the uh, Assistant Secretary General for Legal Affairs in the United Nations, who talked about the work of the Security Council. And we've also had lectures from Sir Michael Wood, a former legal advisor of the Foreign Office. Uh, they, they make a very interesting series, as they say, all published by Most. CUP. Yes. Then we move on in terms of professional activity to a couple of cases. So, Eli, could I just show you at this point, as we approach the Tava case, a photograph which Sir Derek gave me for our eminent scholars' website. And here he is with counsel for Egypt at the arbitration in Geneva. And I find it very interesting that two senior academics from Cambridge were involved in the same case. Oh, well, um, uh, that case is but one of several in which uh, Derek Bowett and I found ourselves pitted against each other. He, in that arbitration, he was counsel for Egypt and I was counsel for Israel. And uh, it was a, a very demanding case. I did really uh, most of the case on my own, uh, whereas Derek had some uh, quite significant and competent support, and eventually Egypt won the arbitration. But it was a, a sign significant arbitration because it was the first and so far the only uh, international adjudication in which Israel has been involved. It took place in, in Geneva. Uh, it was fully argued both in writing and then orally. <coughs> and um, I did have some, some significant uh, and interesting help on the Israeli side, not least from uh, Ambassador Rosen, the author of the major study on the International Court of Justice. Uh, and then uh, at about even before, well, I think just about the time that Tava finished, we, we became involved in the case between El Salvador and Honduras regarding their, their maritime boundary. Derek on the Honduras side and myself on the El Salvador side. I Again, about that. And this was in the International Court of Justice, and it extended over several years. Again, a very interesting case. Uh, uh, then... Around about that time, uh, I was made a CBE, which was very gratifying, and I became a bencher of my inn, Gray's Inn, uh, in London. Uh, I, I'm sure you'll appreciate that all these things were not consecutive, but were going on in parallel. They overlapped. I mean, yes. Taba overlapped with El Salvador, and uh, that, that overlapped with all my work at the, the research centre to, to
to administer that and to, to raise funds yes. for it. And <clears throat> so, uh, also, towards the end of that decade, uh, I became involved in the peace negotiations between Israel and Jordan, and ultimately, when when they, the issues were resolved, they involved some interesting innovations uh, in terms of uh, the protection of vested interests of nationals of the one state across the border in the other state. Eventually, when, when the agreement was signed and the boundary was opened up, I sat with, I remember sitting, sitting in a row at the, the, the Jordan Bridge uh, with the leading Jordanian negotiator on one side and the leading Israeli negotiator on the other side. And then uh, at the same time as all this was going on, I became chairman of the newly established Asian Development Bank Administrative Tribunal, which sat in Manila uh, a couple of times a year. I, I couldn't keep this up for more than about two years because it was really very time-consuming. By the time one had flown out and recovered in Manila and had the hearings in Manila and then flown back and recovered in England, uh, the best part of three or four weeks was gone and I, yes. I didn't have enough time to provide that twice a year. So I, I resigned after a couple of years. But I, I had very, very um, you know, fine colleagues there, including uh, from the Philippines, uh, Judge uh, Feliciano and uh, a colleague from Sri Lanka. So that then overlapped with another very demanding uh, forensic activity, namely proceedings in the recently established Iran-U.S. Claims Tribunal. That was <coughs> the outcome of the negotiations between the U.S. and Iran uh, to, to resolve the outstanding issues arising from the change of government uh, in Iran and the seizure of U.S. assets. And so this <coughs> tribunal, the, the Iran-U.S. Claims Tribunal, was set up in, uh, in The Hague, initially with uh, Judge Lagergren as its president. Uh, I was asked by three American oil companies to represent their cases in, in that tribunal, and I was happy to do so, but I said to them, there's no way in which I can do this on my own, and I think it's right that I should have associated with me some American lawyers. And they said, well, whom would you suggest? And I suggested the name of a firm in Washington called Pearson, Sems, Crolius and Finley. Uh, Finley had been a pupil of mine back in the 60s in Cambridge. He, he was an American, uh, a very, very capable lawyer indeed. And he'd gone back and uh, p participated in the establishment of this firm. Now, the oil companies had not heard of this firm, and they said, well, tell us about it. And I said, well, if firms like... <coughs> uh, oh, the name slipped my mind. But uh, if two of the leading firms of Washington, whose names will come back to me, I'm sure, in a moment, uh, are to be regarded as the Cadillacs of the law industry in Washington, this firm is a Porsche. <laughs> and uh, so my, my <coughs> clients were persuaded that 
they should be brought in, and they did do a first-class job in, in very complex and detailed proceedings which involved, uh, amongst other things, uh, the valuation of the entitlement of the companies to produce oil in Iran for the next uh, 20 or 30 years. But when one considers uh, the price of oil calculated then and compares it with the price of oil that has now reached, which is over $100 a barrel, one, one realizes uh, how, how um, in a way, uh, unreal was the estimate that we were then making of oil maybe reaching $21 a barrel. But uh, that, that was a very interesting set of cases. Unfortunately, uh, this particular set uh, never reached a conclusion because uh, the oil companies concerned uh, decided to settle with Iran on, uh, on terms that were agreeable to both sides and which meant that the oil companies uh, could continue to, to operate in Iran in the, in the resumed uh, agreements. And then, as again about the same time as this, uh, there was um, going on the, uh, another case between Chile and Argentina. I've already mentioned to you the, <coughs> the case uh, called the Palena case back in the 60s, which was a very interesting case where the, the tribunal had uh, reached a result which was satisfying to both sides. Uh, the larger area was given to Argentina, but was mainly mountainous, and a smaller area was given to, to Chile, but was the inhabited part of the disputed zone. Now, the Laguna del Desierto was somewhat to the south of uh, Palena, and uh, the title there was, uh, the issue there related to the title to this, this lake and the immediate surrounding district. Well, <laughs> It wasn't a very salubrious place. I remember visiting it, and uh, I got out of the helicopter that had taken me to, to see the Laguna, and was immediately attacked by a ferocious swarm of mosquitoes. So much so that I could hardly get back into the mosquito and uh, into the helicopter fast enough, and close the door and swat those that had stuck to me. Uh, it was, uh, uh, as I say. It, it, it was not a very uh, agreeable place, but it, it was a place uh, to which both sides attached uh, importance. The, the Chileans largely, because in an unfortunate encounter between Chilean and Argentinian uh, frontier police, a Chilean police officer had been killed. I must say, I couldn't locate this place on any of the maps, including the very detailed Times map in the Square Library. Well, um, it lies uh, south of Lago San Martin, uh, between San Martin and uh, Jimmy, uh, Mount Fitzroy. Uh, but uh, it probably wouldn't appear on a map. Eventually, we, we had hearings in Rio de Janeiro, and uh, again, Argentina won that. That was uh, some some disappointment to the Chileans and to me, and subsequently there were further proceedings in which I was not involved, in, in which the Chileans sought a decision regarding the extension of that boundary in the glacier area round there. Uh, I've not seen a, a copy of that decision. 
So we then went on from Laguna del Desierto to a very interesting experience, which was my giving of expert evidence in a case in the uh, Federal District Court in the United States, in a case called uh, Valero Energy Corporation and Coastal States Marketing as plaintiffs against Nelson Bunker Hunt. Uh, This was in the United States District Court for the Southern District of Texas, Houston Division, and was uh, in about uh, 1981, I suppose it must have uh, happened, or thereabouts. Uh, (coughs) This was a case not dissimilar to the Rosemary case, which I mentioned earlier, in which uh, proceedings had been started by Nelson Bunker Hunt, who had an oil concession in Libya, which had been expropriated by the Libyans, against coastal states marketing, which had bought oil from that concession, but getting that title from the Libyans. And Nelson Bunker Hunt was challenging their title. And the, the, um, uh, the, the, the two defendants in those proceedings brought by Hunt, Valero and Coastal States, are then, in a sense, counterattacked by bringing proceedings, antitrust proceedings, against Hunt, uh, saying that this was a, a restraint, an a, a unacceptable or impermissible restraint of trade. And this was the issue in the Texas court. The defense that Hunt put up was that it was a reasonable action on his part, and that was denied by the other side. I was uh, asked to give evidence about uh, this concept of pursuit litigation, which had been introduced by Rosemary some uh, or nearly 30 years previously. And I gave my evidence, uh, and uh, it was subsequently published in full in a United States publication called the International Lawyer, which I think was the uh, periodic publication of the International Law Branch of the American Bar Association. And uh, it's published there some 50 pages of that evidence, which is really quite interesting as to uh, the the origin of the pursuit concept and so on. And uh, after I'd given my evidence, uh, the case was discontinued. uh, The evidence seemed to have been uh, persuasive, and, uh, and, and, and the case was not uh, so far as I'm aware, pursued further. How interesting that issues that arose over 30 years ago should be revisited. Very interesting. Well, it, it was interesting because, as I say, it, 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 the issue had first been raised in the Rosemary, then it was repeated, as I think I mentioned to you, in the Suez Canal situation and in the <coughs> Manganese uh, Sunny uh, Mining Company case and so on. Yes. Uh, and, and it had uh, many ramifications in U.S. courts where the position which I adopted was not all, always shared by the U.S. courts. There was a very famous case called Sabatino, uh, it, 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 which was contrary to the Rosemary approach, but then there was U.S. legislation which seemed to, to accept it. And then there was a thing called the Federal Tort Claims Act, which uh, also embodied the, the possibility of suing in respect of foreign wrongs. So that was that case, 
the international standing of the AOI, and there were arbitrations, which I was not actually involved in, on which I was giving advice. And so I went on from AOI to to uh, another another case in which I was the presiding arbitrator, the uh, NAFTA case, a case under the North American Free Trade Agreement, which is the agreement concluded between uh, the U.S. and Canada. This is a case about uh, agricultural tariffs, uh, in which uh, eventually the tribunal decided in favour of <coughs> of Canada. Uh, it was a complex technical case. I won't bother you with the details. And then uh, there was another case, also under the same agreement, which had been extended to Mexico as well, uh, about uh, the treatment by Mexico of a, a U.S. enterprise uh, in in Mexico, metal-clad, where we gave a decision uh, in favor of the United States uh, uh, on the question of the legality of the treatment by the Mexican uh, state authorities of this uh, U.S. investment. Uh, and that took quite a bit of time. We moved on from there. And, uh, I must remind you, of course, uh, all along in parallel with all this, I was continuing with my university te- teaching and with the running of the, the research center and uh, uh, helping uh, Christopher Greenwood in his mammoth task of editing the international law reports and so on. I wonder how you managed to fit it all in so early. Well, the the answer to that is very simple. I don't think I did anything else. I I, I think um, I'm a dull boy, the product of all work. Uh, I mean, international law was was both work and hobby. And uh, also on the side, there was grocious publications, which I mentioned last term, you know, one just kept on at them. I had very good secretarial help, uh, and that's how one did it. But um, at that about that time, uh, we began to consider the question of whether (coughs) the nuclear tests case that had been uh, decided between Australia and New Zealand on the one side and France on the other back in the 70s, uh, had to, we had to consider whether that should be reopened. And the, the basis on which that consideration could proceed was an observation by the court back in 1974 uh, that if there was any change in the circumstances which might lead to atmospheric uh, fallout on the territory of New Zealand or Australia, then the, the parties might go back to it. Uh, Now, throughout that period, uh, although uh, France had ceased atmospheric nuclear testing back in 1974, it had continued with underground nuclear testing uh, at Mururoa Island. And so there was some concern, uh, lest uh, Mururoa Island, subjected as it was to these continuing tests, might disintegrate on the next series of tests and nuclear fallout be projected atmospherically onto the territory of New Zealand and Australia. And so New Zealand decided, and Australia came alongside, that it would seek the reopening of the proceedings in the court. Uh, This was 
both legally feasible and politically desirable because uh, both in New Zealand and Australia and elsewhere in the world there was a feeling that the French testing should stop. So uh, uh, the proceedings were started by uh, New Zealand and I was <coughs> assisting New Zealand in this. Uh, they were unsuccessful. Uh, uh, we couldn't persuade the court that this risk was sufficiently real to justify the court uh, a finding against France. Uh, but nonetheless, it was politically very advantageous to both New Zealand and Australia as demonstrating their commitment to environmental protection. You have to appreciate that in those days, the 70s and 80s, there was not the same uh, understanding of or knowledge about or inclination to protect the environment that there is today, where of course it's a continuing major issue. So that these episodes at that time were part of the evolving history of international environmental protection. Yes, I was interested to see your involvement in what has become such an important area of international law today. Well, uh, yes, and I, I have had some other involvement in it. I, just jumping forward, uh, at one point I appeared for the Irish government uh, in making submissions to an English local government inquiry uh, regarding uh, developments at the Sellafield uh, nuclear mm. plant up in, in Cumbria, uh, where we, we, we put some considerations very strongly to, to stop the Sellafield people developing underground uh, nuclear storage facilities. And <coughs> um, much later on, I was involved in the proceedings that Malaysia brought against Singapore in the International Tribunal on the Law of the Sea uh, regarding uh, measures that Singapore was taken for land reclamation uh, in the absence of any attempt at uh, an environmental impact assessment uh, and uh, uh, there, there was, uh, Malaysia attained a, a measure of success not, not that the land reclamation was stopped but that it was to be controlled and developed uh, in, in, consider in discussion with, with uh, Malaysia so I have, I have had a continuing interest in environmental protection well then at about this time, too, the extended proceedings between Qatar and Bahrain regarding the maritime boundary between them and title to certain islands, of which the most important was uh, Hawa in, in the Gulf, uh, were the subject of proceedings in the ICJ. I noticed that Sir Derek was involved in this case as well. That's right. He yes. and I were in this one together. And I have a lovely photograph of you, Sir Eli, with Sir Derek, um, with the ruler of Bahrain. That's in the right, yes. Uh, yes. Shaking hands with Sheikh Issa. Yes. Um, the relationship with, with Bahrain was always very cordial and agreeable and uh, continued for me right through to the end of the, the proceedings. Uh, I, I got a, a very nice decoration from the Bahrainis. Do you well, have a photograph of that? I think I probably have somewhere. I'll try and find it for you. But uh, <coughs> the Bahrainis uh, uh, indicated their appreciation of the ultimate success of the case 
by making a very significant financial contribution to the acquisition by the research center of the house next door oh, to the one that I uh, that I spoke of earlier. Our first premises were on at number five Cranmer Road and number seven Cranmer Road, the house next to it, at uh, that time belonged to my own college, Trinity, which was using it as a research student's hostel. And I uh, discussed with the bursars of the college at that time the possibility of the college selling it uh, to the centre. And the college agreed to do this. But the money had to be found. And uh, Bahrain produced a very handsome contribution without which we couldn't have proceeded. Uh, and again, some, some uh, uh, contributions were found elsewhere. And then we got the house, but we then had to put it into a habitable shape because various changes needed to be made to satisfy local safety requirements and so on. And that couldn't have been done without the benefit of another very substantial grant from the Malaysian government who appreciated what had been uh, done for them in the case between Malaysia and Singapore. Interesting. So we really owe the physical premises of the research centre uh, to Bahrain, to Malaysia, uh, to my own college Trinity, which made substantial contributions, and to a number of private subscribers, including uh, myself. So um, now we have two fine buildings and grounds, I think, which are the envy of many. Absolutely. The only trouble is that they, they require maintenance, and maintenance costs money, and that's the difficult thing to, to come by these days. So we have the Gutter Bahrain case, which went through various stages, which I won't weary you with. There, there was, it took a long time uh, to procure uh, an agreement between the two sides on the basis of which a question could be put to the court, but this was eventually done, and the case proceeded, and uh, and Bahrain was successful in maintaining its title to the island of Hawa, and the court, as that was a, an important element in the uh, the construction of the maritime delimitation, then produced a, a result which was acceptable to Bahrain and to, to Gata and the two states which were for so long locked in international litigation now have very friendly, fraternal relations. Uh, I, I think I remember reading that the decision came under some criticism because it was said to have been steeped in colonialism. Uh, I'm not aware of that criticism, and I'm trying to think, as you say it, uh, or, or where there might be an element of colonialism. Of course, to establish uh, the title of the two territories uh, to anything involved going back into the history of the, of the Gulf area, but uh, uh, and, and, and that involved uh, going back in part into uh, the Ottoman archives. And there was a very interesting question which did not have to be decided by the court as to whether certain documents uh, involved in the case as produced by Gata had been falsified, but uh, the court didn't, get in, didn't find it necessary to, to treat that subject. But uh, colonialism, no, but uh, 
colonial history, yes. R rather that it upheld an earlier decision when Bahrain had been, part, had been a British colony. Oh, yes, that, that was an element. Uh, uh, there, was, there was a time, as you say, when Bahrain had not been a British colony, but had been a British protected state. And uh, <coughs> an issue had to be decided by Britain as between Bahrain and Qatar regarding a, a certain parts. And that issue had been decided in favour of Bahrain. Uh, and one element in the case was whether, whether that decision should be maintained, and it was. So, uh, I've already mentioned to you the Hirschlag Park Memorial Lectures, uh, which the, was an ongoing series. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, I can't lay my hands at this instant on who all the lecturers were, but they were good people and much appreciated. I think the first one was Shabti Rosen. Uh, yeah, Rosen and, and, and Schwebel. Judge Schwebel gave very interesting series of lectures on aspects uh, of international arbitration, uh, so, some disputed points. Uh, and, uh, uh, yes, oh, I found a list. Yes, the first one was uh, Shabtai Rosen on breach of treaty. And then we had lectures from Felice Morgenstern, who uh, had been a Cambridge scholar and had gone to the ILO and spent her whole life in the legal side of the ILO on legal problems of international organizations. And this was followed by John Dugard on recognition and the United Nations. Uh, then came uh, Judge Schwebel on international arbitration, three salient problems. Then came uh, uh, Mr. Professor Meron, now, now the, the president of the ICTY, the International Criminal Tribunal for Yugoslavia, uh, who uh, <coughs> uh, spoke about human rights in internal strife. Then came uh, Professor Seidel-Hohenvelden from Vienna on corporations in and under international law. Then Sir Ian Sinclair on the International Law Commission. And then uh, Professor Schroyer on state immunity. And then myself, and this is only listing the first nine lectures, on aspects of the administration of international justice. And the series has continued with uh, other eminent uh, uh, contributors. So uh, <coughs> then, as I say, th that was all going on on the side. And at about that time, must be 1993, uh, uh, I was selected to be the ad hoc judge uh, in the case brought by Bosnia against Yugoslavia, arising out of the breakup of Yugoslavia and the, the consequent troubles and allegations of uh, uh, genocide uh, in, in Bosnia. Uh, this was a, a very interesting experience for me. Uh, of course, an ad hoc judge is always assumed to, to, to support uh, the, the side which appoints him. I found that a very difficult concept to accept. So, in my, uh, in the course of the judgment by the court, on the first stage of that case, I produced a, a, a separate opinion in which I expounded what I understood to be the role of the ad hoc judge, 
which was not that of simply supporting the case of the side that appointed him, but was rather to approach the case just like any other judge, but nonetheless to ensure that the case of the side that appointed him was properly considered in all its detail by the court and was not just glossed over. Uh, and this approach uh, has been supported by a number of ad hoc judges in subsequent cases. And I continued as the ad hoc judge in that case for about uh, three or four years until by reason of the uh, changes in the uh, structure of Yugoslavia, uh, the original case uh, came to an end and a new case was started and Bosnia then appointed another ad hoc judge of uh, a uh, 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 Bosnian professor of international law. So you had been appointed by Bosnia initially? Yes, at the very beginning, in 1990. Well, the, the first decision was 1993, and I must have been appointed a, a year or two before that. Oh dear, it goes on and on. Well, then, uh, at about this time, sorry, in the period prior to and during 1996, I uh, <coughs> uh, was preparing lectures uh, for the Hague Academy of International Law, which I delivered in 1996 on principles of international litigation. I've been rather naughty because I haven't actually submitted to the Hague Academy of International Law the text of those lectures yet. And so much has happened in the international litigation field in the ensuing decade that I have virtually to start from scratch, uh, a task not, not easily undertaken but made the easier because I have the admirable assistance of Dr. Chester Brown, now the Foreign Commonwealth Office, who is, is um, helping me a great deal in, in the revision of those lectures. And it is our hope to submit something to the Hague Academy uh, before too long. Now, do you want me to go on now? It's, uh, uh, if, you, if, you would, if you feel... You, you would I like, would quite like to, to break off right, that's at fine. this so point. You, next uh, time we can look at... And the, we can start at Namibia Botswana. Interesting, and then yeah. we can talk about um, your knighthood. I'd very much like to know the circumstances and any anecdotes you have of the occasion. Oh, the, the, if you're asking me why did I get my knighthood, I can't answer that. I don't know why, except that the... Uh, the, the, the official statement was for services to public international law. Yes. And that's all I know. Yes. 